We learned Friday that the economy added 103,000 jobs in March. The unemployment rate held steady at 4.1%. But I want to zero in on one particular job, teacher. I find myself being stressed about making my rent payments every month. Um, I worry about um, saving for my future. I'm stressed about helping my children pay for college. I'm concerned that I can't save enough money for vacation. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and this is Marketplace Weekend, where the economy meets real life. That was Nancy Belange. She teaches AP U.S. History in California. And this week, we're going to start with the recent protests and walkouts by teachers in Kentucky, Oklahoma, West Virginia, and Arizona over working conditions, pay, and benefits. One big issue is the post-recession recovery. You may have heard my colleague Amy Scott's report earlier this week that 29 states have less funding per student now than they did in 2008. So how has school funding changed and what does it mean for teachers? Nancy Belange, who you just heard, teaches in the Orange Unified School District in Southern California. She says she and her colleagues took a pay cut from 2008 to 2015 in the form of fewer paid workdays. It was difficult. We had furlough days, and so our our salaries were decreased because of those furlough days, just because of the but the district budget. It was really hard to um, to make ends meet at home, uh, raising three kids. It was difficult. The district did give teachers a two percent raise in 2016, and old textbooks are being replaced with new editions. But as we've seen, a lot of issues remain across the country. Let's look at the big picture of school funding with Mike Griffith. He's a school finance consultant at the Nonpartisan Education Commission of the States. So coming out of the recession, I think a lot of states were expecting that they'd have additional dollars to kind of fill the holes of the cuts they made um, between sort of 2008 and 2010 or 11. What has happened, though, is most states have not had these additional dollars available for a lot of various reasons. Some of it is... States rely on sales tax revenue in a lot of cases, and sales taxes have not picked up to the point that they were at before the recession for a lot of different reasons. In other cases, states have made some budget decisions or tax policy decisions that have reduced their state revenue. So the money just hasn't been there like we would anticipate after a recession. So what states have had to do is either flat fund education in a lot of cases or in some states actually reduce education spending. So that's really impacted school districts. And one of the big things that gets impacted are teacher salaries and benefits. They account for about 60 to 65% of all education spending. So when we talk about there being flat money available, it's really going to probably impact teacher salaries and benefits. Well, yeah, I mean, if you cut spending on on teacher salaries and benefits, um, what does that mean for teachers and what does that mean in the classroom? It means a lot of things. What we're seeing in states and especially in school districts in the middle part of the country is they're having a difficult time recruiting and retaining teachers, qualified teachers. And so, you know, there's always been a difficulty in smaller school districts in this country to get a qualified, say, math teacher, science or special ed teacher. But they're starting to see these shortages across the board, and we're also starting to see it in larger districts and suburban districts that really haven't had these problems before. There's also something else that goes in there with spending, too, is, you know, for any job, it's not just your pay and your benefits. It's 
everything else within your day-to-day job. And so what we're hearing from teachers from around the country is they don't have the, the modern textbooks that they need. They don't have the technology that they need. They don't have the support outside of the classroom because of budget cuts. So you don't have people like as many counselors as they used to have or librarians or the other types of people that help teachers do their job day to day. So it's not just pay and benefits, it's everything else that surrounds the job. You know, when we listen to a teacher talk about how hard this is, um, what's the other side of this coin? What are the states saying? Obviously, there is school financing on the local level, but when you look at this in these statewide strikes, um, there must be a reason that that states are funding things where they are. What is it? So I think, you know, what has happened is states made a lot of different decisions about limiting state revenue over the past decade or so. What that has meant is the dollars are not available unless you create some sort of tax increase. And a lot of legislators have kind of vowed and said they do not want to increase taxes. So what you're seeing states doing, because, you know, overall state revenue is flat, is they're trying to rob Peter to pay Paul and take money from other parts of the budget and put it into education. But that's still not enough. And, you know, you're looking at some states that are, you know, have hit that point now that all of the budget maneuvering they can do is kind of tapped out that now the only way to produce additional revenue is to increase taxes. And that's where, you know, you're really seeing the rubber hit the road and and state legislatures are struggling with what do we do at this point? What's at stake during these strikes? You know, a a lot of different things from the teacher's side. In most of these states, there are uh, rules and laws against striking. So they can either lose pay for the number of days that they're on strike or in some cases, theoretically, they could be fired for striking. So they're taking a chance on that end. From you know the state's end, what they're looking at is how do we solve this problem without additional dollars? How do we get to a point that we can provide a pay increase, a benefit increase this year and know that we'd have to su- sustain it for all the years kind of forward, you know. So if you spend an extra, I'm just going to say $100 million on teacher salaries this year, that means that you're pretty much going to have to do that next year plus inflation just to keep pace. So, you know, I think from both ends, there's there's a struggle going on, you know. And from the school district's end, in some of these states, the amount of money that they have made available to spend is really dictated by the state funding formula. In some states, there isn't a lot of flex- flexibility for districts to raise their own money. So they're kind of stuck between these two. They'd like to provide their teachers with additional salary and benefits. They know that would help them recruit more people and to retain the quality teachers that they have. But they can't do much about it. So they're sort of school district people are very often sitting on the sidelines for these, hoping that the state can find more money that they can give to their teachers but not really being able to do anything on either side of this. Mike Griffith is a school finance consultant at the Education Commission of the States. Thank you so much, Mike. Oh, no problem. So what's it like to be a teacher working in the post-recession recovery? Well, let's hear from another one. Uh, My name is Maggie Maslowski. I live in Illinois, and I teach in Joliet at Joliet West High School. I am a high school English teacher And I also am a grad school professor at a grad school in Joliet as well. 
Mislowski started her teaching career in a private school, teaching K through 8th grade. And I only made about 19000 and that was back in 2003. So first job, teaching six props. So you had to prepare for six different classes with six different groups of students. Um, and only $19,000 is what I got paid. And on that salary... If I wanted to decorate my room, I would have to buy my own stuff. It was a private school, so some parents were in a position to make donations and ease the burden, but the pay just wasn't enough. Fast forward four years to 2007, and Maslowski moved to a public school. I doubled my salary. My salary was double, and my insurance was better, and I only had to teach three preps. So my workload was cut in half, but my pay was doubled. While things improved for her, the financial crisis brought about changes for her students and what she could do with them. Back in 2007, um, I know I took my students on like a field trip. I took, I did a field trip once a year that coincided with lessons that we did in class. And the school paid for the buses. The kids did not have to worry about paying for buses. But then just two, three years later, we were told no more field trips because the, the state no longer paid for school buses. Now the school district pays for buses, not the state. But the crash also hit other things. We don't have personal copy machines or printers in our classrooms. We used to, Each classroom would have a printer and you could print whatever you wanted. So you have 300 teachers using three or four different printers. For Mislowski, even with these issues, she recognizes things at her school are better than most. Teachers receive annual raises and health insurance, although out-of-pocket expenses have increased. But the situation is different for a nearby school. Their district had three high schools, and it dwindled down to two, so one of the buildings is no longer in usage, and their teachers are on a freeze. They don't get a salary increase, and their teachers are trying to find different jobs because they are not paid well. That's Maggie Mislowski, an English teacher from Joliet, Illinois. Her experience is just one of thousands of stories from educators in the U.S., And if you want to add your thoughts to this, the impact of state funding on teaching, just let us know. Our email is weekend at marketplace.org, or you can call us and leave a message, 1-800-648-5114. Just as you count on Marketplace for reliable, in-depth news and information, we are counting on listeners like you to invest in what we do. The more people who support Marketplace, the more we can do to raise economic intelligence across this country. Here is another number to think about. Five bucks a month. Five bucks a month and you can become a Marketplace investor. The payoff? Knowing that you're helping thousands of people understand this economy, having conversations that matter, and making better financial decisions. Donate today at Marketplace.org. And thanks. You're listening to Marketplace Weekend. Maybe you're listening to the show this week over a cup of morning coffee. Or mid-afternoon coffee. Or, hey, evening coffee. And every week we round up news by the numbers. And I bet you can't guess what this week's theme is. Yeah, it's coffee. Shocking, I know. Here are Marketplace producers Sarah Menendez and Tony Wagner. Thanks, Lizzie. Our first number is... 1,000. That's how many new locations Dunkin' Donuts plans to open by 2020. Well, scratch the donuts, it may just be Dunkin' now. The coffee company is experimenting with a rebrand. They're rolling out Nitro Cold Brew and a food menu and making a big push for their mobile app, which currently only accounts for 3% of sales. Dunkin' will make a final decision on whether to stick with its abbreviated name later this year. Can't wait. 91. 
That's how many California coffee companies are being sued by the Council for Education and Research on Toxins, a nonprofit group. The suit alleges that companies aren't warning consumers about a chemical present in coffee, acrylamide, that can cause cancer in rats. But medical experts say coffee is safe for humans and may even have some health benefits. A proposed ruling from an L.A. area judge would require that coffee sold in California carry a warning label. Coffee companies have until April 10th to file objections. 37. That's about how many minutes police spent chasing a stolen Stumptown coffee truck on Monday. The low-speed chase spanned surface streets and two California freeways. It ended with the suspect abandoning the vehicle and dashing across five lanes of traffic before being arrested. Listen, don't ask me to run across five lanes of traffic before I've had my coffee. Gotta have my java. You're listening to Marketplace Weekend, where the economy meets real life. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. And if you haven't filed your taxes yet, I'm here to remind you that the deadline is April 17th. And yeah, the process can be stressful and confusing. Yousef Benzardi, an assistant professor of economics at UCLA, studied our tax system, and he found that many taxpayers actually give up tax savings in order to make the whole process shorter and easier. We spoke recently and started with one of Benzardi's main findings, that the cost of filing taxes has gone up steadily since the 1980s. But why? What's driving it is the fact that population increases, and so there are more and more people filing taxes. But we have to file more and more additional schedules. So I was looking at the 1980s forms today, the 1040 form, and you could see that if you were uh, less than $400 of capital gains, you didn't have to file a separate schedule. Nowadays you do, and so... You just have more people finding schedules that they didn't have to file before. When when you set about thinking, like, I'm going to look at this system, um, how did you do it? So I had no idea what I was getting into, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> and what I did is I took every single 1040 uh, instructions uh, from the 1960s to 2015 and just started going through them. I printed them, and, you know, it was a pretty big stack of paper, and but I'm a tax geek, and so it was a very enjoyable time for me. <laughs> for any other person, I, I bet it would be torture. Well, what did you find when you started looking? Because you kind of zeroed in on the standard deduction. What did you find there? Itemizing deductions is painful. Um, you have to go through receipts. You have to collect your statements from the bank for your mortgage interest, and you have to file separate schedules. And so I figured there has to be some people who claim the standard deduction, even though they could benefit from itemizing. And so I had to come up with a clever strategy of looking at them. And the idea was, imagine the standard deduction is $10,000. Imagine you have $10,001 of the deductions that you could itemize. I mean, obviously, you're not going to itemize that, right? Because it's not worth it. And so I thought, okay, let's just look in the data and see how many of those people are there. Does it get to $10,000, $11,000, $12,000? And to my surprise, I found that there was a lot of people missing in that region. And people are leaving on average on the table about $600 of after-tax money. And so that's, wow. kind of, that's almost the equivalent of 20 hours of work. So they perceive itemizing deductions as being as as costly as working 20 hours <laughs> at their regular job. But basically, they're saying the sort of mental headache here is equal to roughly 600 bucks. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So the, it, it's a headache cost, essentially. Yeah. 
So a big question I have here is we are, you know, looking forward at this change in the tax law. I I should say many changes in the tax law. The standard deduction increases. A lot of those itemizations go away. Do you think the pattern that you found is still going to hold true? The standard deduction is doubling. So there's there's going to be a lot of people who are going to benefit from that. I mean, from a headache cost perspective, are just going to claim the standard deduction instead of itemizing. But, you know, yeah. I mean, unless we get rid of itemizing deductions and we give a standard deduction to everybody, there's always going to be people who are going to be leaving money on the table and claim the standard deduction instead of itemizing. Can I ask you a question that might sound silly, but it's something <laughs> that I've always wondered as a taxpayer? Yeah. Why, why do we have a deduction instead of just paying lower taxes? That's a great question, and that's a question that um, public finance economists have been asking over and over again. I mean, essentially what we're doing is we're giving a tax break to a specific group of people. We give tax breaks for people who have kids. We give tax breaks to people who own houses. Part of that is trying to incentivize individuals to own houses. Part of that is just reducing their tax bill, but the most efficient way is really what you pointed out to, which is get rid of those tax breaks and reduce the marginal tax rate, and that should make things much more efficient. This is why when politicians say, oh, well, we should, you know, make your taxes doable on a postcard, people like that idea, even though that that may be confusing some arguments. The IRS knows most of the information we file in our taxes, and the IRS could file our taxes for us and just have us sign a tax return. That's what's being done in most of European countries, Norway, Finland, Denmark. We don't need to simplify the tax system. It can it can remain as complex as it is, but we could remove most of the headache costs that people incur every year. You know, if someone's listening to this, do you have any advice for them after looking at, at all the data you've looked at? I think the kind of the best Practical advice is just get a box and put every single receipt that you think could be used for claiming deductions or for doing your taxes. Do the same with your inbox. Create a little tab where you put everything. And then when when tax season comes, you can just go back to those and it'll be almost painless. Well, obviously, I have to ask you, do you itemize? I do, actually. I itemized for the first time this year. Um, so The first time? But you're the guy who studied this. <laughs> yeah, but I didn't have enough uh, deductions. So I purchased a home this year, and then that put me above the standard deduction threshold, and I itemized for the first time. Yes, yes. Yusef Benzardi, Assistant Professor of Economics at UCLA. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Last week, President Trump said he wants to send National Guard members to the U.S.-Mexico border to patrol it. And that, of course, is against the backdrop of a push to change immigration laws, to do things like reduce the number of legal immigrants in the country and change the kind of immigrants coming, their skill sets, their connections to family in the U.S. Immigration policy has a big impact on our economy, and we're going to dig into that with Marketplace's Mitchell Hartman. Hi, Mitchell. Hi, Lizzie. Good to be here. Can you kind of walk us through what role immigrants play in the U.S. workforce right now? 
Well, yeah. So immigrants as a percentage of the labor force, back in 2000, it was about 13% of workers. Now it's 17%, probably a little more since they last gathered the data. And that includes documented and undocumented immigrants. What happens if the number of immigrants, um, including refugees, keeps going down? Well, you know, we already have low unemployment and labor shortages are emerging. We've got baby boomers retiring. The U.S. birth rate is down. And about a million legal immigrants have been coming to the U.S. every year and helping to offset those other declines in the labor force. What about the numbers of immigrants already here? Uh, one high-profile group, obviously, is the, the so-called dreamers who came as children, had uh, protected status under DACA. Um, though all of this has been now held up in the courts, um, how does all of this affect them? Well, you know, as deportations ramp up just in general for undocumented people, and then if the dreamers start losing their work authorizations, their permission to stay, you'll have more immigrants going underground, starting to work undocumented. I talked to Stephanie. She's a dreamer. She's now 25. She's finishing her BA at the University of Oregon. She came here from Mexico, first to LA, at age 11 as a teenager. She was working under the table, undocumented, to help support her family. Then she got DACA. She asked that we only use her first name to avoid problems with immigration. I got it on my 21st birthday, and it has been life-changing because prior to that, I was working as a completely undocumented person in a restaurant in L.A. where we got paid, like, less than minimum wage. We worked more than 40 hours. We didn't have any access to um, benefits, and it was exploitive. So there's obviously a big benefit for Stephanie to be documented, also kind of a knock-on benefit for the overall economy. I like to think about it not so much in the sense of monetary gain, but like the access of, to resources. Because now I'm able to join unions, get help paying for school. I'm able to get doctor's assistance. Yes, I could tell you, you know, it's a difference of $5 in pay. However, other resources I'm getting from being documented are invaluable. Now, there's an argument. Uh, the president has made it and other folks make it. Um, and, and some folks, I should say, in organized labor over the years have said immigrants take American jobs um, and at the same time are hard to assimilate into the U.S. workforce. What do we know about whether or not that holds up? Well, you know, this is something we hear a lot, both from people concerned about you know, whether there will be uh, jobs for native-born Americans um, and also employers. Um, I talked to Art Hendricks about this. He is a manager at Portland Parks and Recreation Department, and he talked about this with me at an event that they hold to welcome immigrants to the community in the city's parks. Oftentimes, we tend to think if they haven't had this education at this college, this kind of work experience that we're familiar with in the United States, well, they don't have the skill sets to do the work. And what I found is that that's not the case at all. The flip side of this is the individual worker's experience potentially facing some hostility because they are perceived as taking someone else's job or adjusting, being accepted. What have you heard on that end? 
Well, I talked to Som Subedi about this. Now, he works for the Parks Department. He actually organizes these immigrant events. He's, he's 36. He has three kids. He's originally from Bhutan. He came to the U.S. from a refugee camp where he grew up, spent most of his life in Nepal, and where, by the way, he earned a bachelor's degree. He says, you know, he has felt hostility and jealousy from U.S.-born co-workers, but he said he pushes ahead. He feels like he has to support his family, and he also really wants to project a good image of the hardworking refugee. Growing up, I didn't have the resources to learn about computers. I'm, I'm learning like so crazy so that I can be with my co-workers who were born here, who learned this process by high school, like Microsoft and all this. But I'm way far behind. Now, Som is probably being modest here uh, because here's what Art Hendricks' boss said about him. I supervise Som, and Som often has to remind me that English is his fifth language. I speak one. And Lizzie, in case you were wondering, Som told me that those languages that he speaks are Jonka, which is the language in Bhutan, uh, plus Nepali, Hindi, British English, and American English, which he insists are separate languages. <laughs> Marketplace's Mitchell Hartman, thank you very much. You're welcome, Lizzie. with immigration and the numbers behind it, we want to update a story that we first told you about a couple years ago, when David Yanofsky, an editor for the website Quartz, sued the federal government. He wanted access to tourism data held by the Commerce Department, really granular stuff, databases where you could figure out how many 18 to 25-year-old Japanese men are traveling to Las Vegas in May. And how does that compare to 60 to 65-year-old Australians traveling to Houston in August? Well, Yanofsky just won his case, which could have big implications for immigration policy. And at the very least, it means Yanofsky and anyone else won't have to pay the fees that the government was asking for in order to get this data. The list price for the um, years of data that I wanted from the two databases that I wanted them um, from was listed at $174,000. Which is, that seems bananas to me. I, I, as, a, as a citizen, I sort of always assumed that government data was free. Uh, a lot of government data is free. Um, it turns out that uh, the Commerce Department, and in this case the International Trade Administration, did not uh, want to give this data away from, for free, um, despite uh, much of it uh, being collected almost automatically uh, at the border. Uh, when someone uh, enters the country who's a non-resident uh, or a non-citizen, a record is created, it's put into a database, and that database is shipped off to the Commerce Department, and they package that into um, these data files that they sell. Um, and then, of course, the other way is you take a, an airline flight, and anyone who's on an airline flight, all of that, an international airline flight, that data gets passed through um, customs and, and border protection to so that they know who who to expect coming into the country and and uh, an anonymized set of that gets passed on to the commerce department and the commerce department packages that and sells it too. 
When you and I first talked and you were first suing the government, one of the arguments that you came up against was this idea that, well, this data is valuable. We can sell it to tourist companies, to hotel chains and and make money for the government. Um, is that true? Is that what you found when you went through this legal process? Um, the data that I'm that I looked at specifically, um, I filed. I, you know, when I was denied, I was very interested in, in answering that question of who actually is paying all of this money. And uh, I finally got a, my response back on that um, request while while going through the the legal process. And it turns out that very few people are buying the data that I'm after. Um, hmm. We from 2003 to 2016. There was only two hundred and twenty thousand dollars in um, uh, invoices that the that the International Trade Administration had on selling um, the data that I was after, and and the list price for what I was going after as one person was one hundred and seventy four thousand dollars. We are talking about all this data and these different numbers, but let's kind of zoom out a little bit. You won your lawsuit, which means. Theoretically, if this doesn't, you know, get appealed, um, you will have access to this data. What can it tell us and why is that so important? It can tell us so much about the United States economy. And it can tell us so much about the fairness and the equity uh, or, or can tell us a lot about the fairness and equity in the U.S. immigration system. Um, we can, besides being able to just track which areas are, are hotspots for, for foreigners from certain countries, which could help travel agencies and airlines and hotels and even, you know, t- small tour operators could go and market to these people in their home countries. Come to Los Angeles, go on a food tour with, with my little company. Um, instead of that only being the exclusive um, right of the people who can afford um, paying the tens of thousands of dollars um, for each year of, of data. On the other hand, we the the government is very cagey about who and um, where um, at a, at a specific level people of certain visa types are uh, or who who is receiving certain types of visas and by using entries as a proxy for that we can understand the gender the ages the locations of people entering the country on certain. Um, whether they be work visas or tourism visas or refugee visa, refugee visas, uh, we can we can learn so and have so much more detail into um, all of these very important issues that are that are uh, of extreme uh, that have extreme attention on them right now because of what the Trump administration has been doing. What happens next? Well, next, the, the government has 60 days to, to uh, appeal the decision, but I have already, I have already filed my latest request um, to get the, the most recent data um, that's out there. You know, this, this process has been going on for so long that two more years of data have come out. So I had to put in a new request for those. I filed that yesterday and made sure to remind them about the decision in this case. David Yanofsky and editor at Quartz, thank you very much. Thanks for having me.
Last week on the show, we talked about trade wars. Who wins? Who loses? Now, China has announced potential retaliatory tariffs on 128 U.S. exports, including pork, lots of fruit, and wine. A lot of U.S. wine is sold within the states, but China is a fast-growing market with a lot of potential. And an additional 15 percent tariff on U.S. wine could hurt U.S. winemakers and mean steep competition from countries like New Zealand and Chile. So we brought in an expert from the California winemaking hub of Napa to tell us more. I'll let her introduce herself. My name is Lindsay Gallagher, and I'm the Vice President of International Marketing for the California Wine Institute based in San Francisco. I work with about 200 member vintners to promote and sell California wines outside the U.S. We're competing with some very well-funded wine region competitors like France, Spain, Australia, New Zealand, Chile, Argentina, and others. Last year, we were happy to have exported 1.52 billion U.S. dollars of wine outside of the U.S., a very successful um, program overall. The top um, market area is the European Union. The EU is about 40% of California wine exports. Canada is the single largest market for us with about 30% of California wine exports going into Canada. And then Japan, Hong Kong, and China round out the top five for us. So that's really, Asia is really a growth engine for California wine exports right now. In 2017, we exported just over 78 million U.S. dollars to to China. And 10 years ago, that number was $14 million. So we've seen really astonishing growth going into China and Hong Kong in particular. And we um, have, have spent a lot of time and energy in developing uh, the business there and helping our California wineries sell more wine into um, mainland China. These tariffs have made the playing field even more unlevel than it had been in the past. So up until last week, U.S. wines imported into China faced a tax and tariff rate of 48.2%, so almost 50% tax and tariff. With the addition of this new tariff of 15%, the tax rate is 67.7, so basically 68% tax on our wine. By contrast, our competitor wine regions like Chile and New Zealand enter China tariff-free, and they only pay 27% combined tax. And Australian wines are going to be tariff-free starting in 2019. So it really creates an even more unlevel playing field for us. China is the number five market for California wine exports right now. And we've really started to see the emerging middle class in China that now has disposable income and um, the ability to purchase luxury goods, whether that's cars or real estate or watches or purses or uh, other fashion items. And California wine is a very fashionable good in China with those emerging middle class consumers. And so I think the where we're going to see the biggest impact is in the lower and medium priced wines. Um, let's be honest, the, the very high end wines that are doing well in China, um, you know, those are already very expensive and very much desired. So a 15% increase on those um, very high end wines is probably not going to discourage um, the consumers who have the disposable income to afford them. But I think the larger impact for California is really going to be on the, the middle price range. Now, all of a sudden, because of the tariff, it's going to be priced higher and perhaps consumers are going to consider wines from other regions that at this point would deliver a better 
price value equation than California can because of this new tariff. So it really puts us at a price disadvantage. Um, That's a very competitive part of the market and one that we had been doing very well in up to this point. Twenty years ago this week, a commercial bank, Citicorp, and an insurance company, Travelers, came together to create Citigroup. It was the largest merger in the corporate world at the time. The world was excited. The only thing that didn't happen on day one is someone didn't throw a parade. That's Mike Mayo, one of Wall Street's best-known bank analysts. He says in some ways, this merger set the stage for the financial crisis ten years later. Mayo is also known for being, in polite terms, an iconoclast. On earnings calls, he's got a reputation for berating CEOs, and he's done that many times for Citigroup, even, well, making it a big focus of his memoir. Two of the ten chapters were about Citigroup in my one and only book, and that's because Citigroup typifies so many uh, abuses in the banking industry over the last half century. Hmm. And two decades ago, this Citigroup merger that what created Citigroup in its current form, I mean, this was almost touted as the deal of the century. Yeah, no, I remember. And you didn't even have legal authority to go through with it. This is the deal that got rid of Glass-Steagall. That, that's one of the things that is so fascinating about this. So, you know, for, for our listeners who don't remember this, um, in order for these two companies to come together, basically a, a – a law that was passed in the aftermath of the Depression had to go away. A tremendous amount of political capital was spent here. Can you tell me sort of about the, the character, sort of Sandy Weil and, and what he did? Well, the law dates back to 1933, the Glass-Steagall Act, which, as you point out, was passed in the aftermath of the Great Depression. And that said that traditional commercial banking with insured deposits – needed to be kept separate from the investment banking when you're dealing with the securities markets. So this deal between Citigroup and at the time Travelers could only go completely through by getting rid of that law. So Congress hadn't even passed the new law yet, and Sandy Weil, CEO of Travelers, and John Reed, CEO of Citicorp, announced a deal. Wow, that's Crazy. I mean, the market value of these companies went up thirty billion dollars on day one. The Citigroup, Citicorp stock went up twenty five percent. But the fact that you announced a deal that couldn't get fully consummated without Congress passing a law—that's either courage, hubris, or just chutzpah. What do you think we know now about that merger that that we should have known? I talk about getting it wrong on day one. Hey, Lizzie, I came prepared. Here, oh, you did? Okay. Yeah, here's right, some, what do you have with Here's you? some comments uh, at the start. One of the most successful ever, a new epic. No one doubted for a single moment. Certainty. It was the significance of the thing. You know what what are these from? You know what that's from? Yeah. That's from uh, the notes of the Titanic uh, when it first took off. <laughs> so this was the Titanic of corporate mergers. Everyone was so excited on day one. This was going to be the deal to transform global finance. By the way, 1998, two decades ago, when this deal was announced, that was also the year that the movie Titanic Titanic, won the Academy Award. What was the big line from the movie? I'm king of the world. (laughs) So you felt as though the CEO, especially Sandy Wall, was king of the world. 
But then you see how it played out through the course of 20 years since the merger was announced. Citigroup stock is down almost 80 percent. And that's at a time when the stock market as a whole has doubled. And and they needed a, quite a large uh, federal bailout in the middle of the financial crisis. And, you know, certainly a, a poster child for the financial crisis is Citigroup. And the amount of assistance they needed from the government was staggering. So thinking about where we are now, what what do you think we can learn from kind of this 20-year period? Is it is it the size that matters, that a, that a bank shouldn't be allowed to be that big or that it shouldn't be allowed to have that much juice with the federal government? You know, what's the takeaway, do you think? You know, I'll give you a one-word takeaway on all of this. You're letting me yeah. off easy, Lizzie. I thought you were going to say, you know, did Glass-Steagall cause this? Should we get rid of – bring back Glass-Steagall? And whether you have Glass-Steagall or not or you're large or small, you know, one root issue in one word – is leverage. Yeah. If you have too much debt, that's a recipe for disaster. And now, are, are we in a safer place? We are absolutely in a safer place. But one of the lessons from Citigroup and the financial crisis is you can't rely too much on human behavior. Because <laughs> if there's an incentive to take an action that's going to make a lot of money in the short term but cause damage in the long term, chances are it's going to happen. And so you need to hardwire safety in the banking industry, and the regulators have done that. So I say bravo, regulators. Uh, the regulators have you know, taken the banking industry, sometimes you know, crying and screaming, but made the foundation stronger than it's been in a generation. What, what do you worry about now? Look, there's short-term, medium-term, and long-term. So in the long-term – the regulatory pendulum you know, swings back and forth, and right now it looks like the regulatory pendulum is swinging back. And again, I, I give a shout-out to the regulators for making the bank so much safer over the last decade. But is there a chance the regulatory pendulum swings too far back? Is there? Not now, uh, but over the next decade, absolutely. We've seen this movie many times before. And you know, another lesson from Citigroup in the financial crisis is that – you know, if you don't learn from the past, you're prone to repeat your mistakes. So 20 years out, what, what do you think are the lessons we should take away from, from the city merger? Look, Citigroup's merger failed um, because of model and management. You know, the model, they wanted to be all things to all people. You were bringing together banking and insurance and securities and doing it all around the world. If you try to be all things to all people, you better know where your strategic advantages lie. As it relates to management, it was an odd couple at the top. I mean, you had Sandy Wild from Brooklyn, you know, kind of rough and tumble. And then you had John Reed uh, while he went to MIT. He was a little bit more, you know, Ivy League-like or prep school-like. At the time, I called it the Noah's Ark of, of mergers because they, <laughs> they brought two of everybody along. And the last thing I'd say, you really need to hardwire safety. You can't rely on human judgment in the banking industry excessively. Mike Mayo, thank you very much. Thank you. For more coverage of the mergers, buyouts, bailouts, and more that added up to the crisis 10 years ago, check out our series, Divided Decade. It's online at Marketplace.org, and on Instagram, we're at MarketplaceAPM. The hashtag is HowWeChanged.
Earlier this year, the National Institute on Retirement Security found that two-thirds of people between the ages of 21 and 32 have nothing saved for retirement. Zero. Silch. But one reporter in Silicon Valley found a handful of millennials, tech workers mostly, who are so good at saving they're planning to retire early, like really early. They're part of a movement called FIRE. FIRE is an acronym. It stands for Financial Independence Retire Early. The principle of it is that uh, if you plan your life a certain way, you can exit the rat race 20 to 30 to 40 years ahead of time. That's Joy Shan, who wrote about FIRE for California Sunday Magazine. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. How is trying to live a FIRE lifestyle different from just, you know, saving, which is something that millions of people across America do? Well, there's a fundamental, I think there's a fundamentally different way of looking at time. If you really jump into the FIRE lifestyle, suddenly you have this deadline. You, let's say, I want to retire in 10 years. I want to retire in 15 years. And usually that's not an arbitrary number. There's like calculation that backs that up. And you have a savings goal. And then suddenly every sort of like opportunity that arises to spend money, um, like going on a vacation with your friends or buying an expensive pair of boots, the question that you or I would have would be like, do I want to spend you know, $300 on a pair of boots? Is it worth it to me? Um, suddenly the question becomes, uh, would it be worth putting off my deadline? Like, would it be worth working for another month or another six months or another year? And I think that that way of understanding money, I think a lot of us have that subconsciously, but it's not articulated as clearly um, as it is for some of these people. The people you met, what kind of money goals did they have? And what kind of, you know, age retirement goals did they have? It actually varied a lot within this. Um, There's lean fire, which are people who maybe they want to retire with $300,000 in investments. Rob and Sarah, who are in the story, they plan to do what they call geo-arbitrage, which is move to, say, Latin America or somewhere in Asia where the dollar has a lot of power, and they plan to live frugally. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there's uh, what's called fat fire, and usually it's higher income professionals like surgeons or senior software engineers uh, who live, um, in the piece I say, they live like interns uh, for the the duration of their career, and then they can enjoy like cushier lifestyles or more upper middle class comfortable lifestyles once they retire. And for that, one of the characters I interviewed was aiming for somewhere in the millions. It seems like a lot of this is this sort of very tech focused online community. You met a lot of people who work in and around Silicon Valley. Um, What is it about tech do you think that brings folks like this together? I think most of the source materials on this on this lifestyle do exist online. It's people writing their own blogs and then getting tons and tons of followers. There are also sort of facets that are p- particular to the technical industries that really make it perfect for fire, at least right now. You know, you have these people whose jobs are sort of, they build systems and optimize systems for mm. living. And I think that a lot of, a lot of the work that it takes to, you know, hack your finances to retire early just has to do with a lot of planning, a lot of calculating. Um, So it's people who really derive a lot of joy and stimulation from that. So it's sort of perfect. 
Another thing is that no one's really showing off their wealth here. You know, in the finance sector, it might be harder to blend in if I'm trying to like be frugal and save money on my appearance. But here, you know, it's sort of part of this ethos where we have like tech leaders like Mark Zuckerberg who wear the same T-shirt every day. The gray T-shirt all the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, let's talk about the financial independence part of this because, you know, it really struck me that these are folks who are earning pretty high salaries and who have sort of engineered a way for for the money to work for them without having to do anything. They are relying on 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 investments. Did did they all seem um okay with that, particularly given that this is a generation that came of age after the financial crisis, often when people don't trust investments? I mean, you really need a lot of money in order to do this because active saving or, you know, taking taking a bus instead of Uber and saving those few dollars, it really, it can't really get you anywhere if you're making below a certain income. All the people I met really, they rely on passive income streams, investing. Some of them are trying to get into real estate, cryptocurrency Hmm. in a lot of situations. I think the interest in cryptocurrency has a lot to do actually with the sense of disillusionment and the sense of um, cynicism and fear that often pervades people of our generation. One thing that I was struck by was how young a lot of these people were, and they were very focused mm-hmm. on saving. But then what are they going to do with all that money? It wouldn't really come up until I asked them directly. People plan on doing passion projects. Some people have plans and some people just sort of have the plan to figure out a plan once the time comes. Joy Shan, an assistant editor at California Sunday Magazine. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. For links to the story and more details on living the fire lifestyle, just go to marketplace.org. And that's it for Marketplace Weekend. The show is produced by Eliza Mills, Peter Bellinon Rosen, and Paulina Velasco. Joanne Griffith is our executive producer, and Charlton Thorpe is our engineer. Naren Rao composed our theme music. Evelyn LaRubia is Marketplace's executive editor. Deborah Clark is our senior vice president and general manager. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. This is APM.